You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll and adding to the killer Talk is Jericho A-lister guest lineup. Kiefer Sutherland is here. That's pretty legendary, man. He's on a new hit TV show called Designated Survivor, but obviously we all know him best as Jack Bauer from 24, or how about Ace from Stand By Me, or how about David in The Lost Boys? I mean, Kiefer's movie credits list is nearly as long as his famous father's Donald Sutherland, and wait till you hear what happened to him and his dad on a plane not too long ago. Uh, How about the time I met his dad on a plane? He's telling all kinds of stories about his various roles and projects. He's also a huge music fan and a great musician he's got his own band and recently released his first album it's called down in a hole and now that he's got a break from his tv gig he and his band are on the road they just played the stagecoach country music festival outside of los angeles and tonight they're at the roxy on the sunset strip they got dates in the states through the end of may and they're headed to Europe for the month of June. You can see the full itinerary and get tickets at KieferSutherlandMusic.com. That's K-I-E-F-E-R, SutherlandMusic.com. And Kiefer is uh, more of a country guy. It's kind of old school, Merle Haggard type country. Go check it out. It's really, really cool. Uh, and it's all right that he's, uh, he's an actor and a musician. It's okay to expand your horizons and do what you feel you want to do and, and, and follow your passions. And, uh, well, you know, I've done that because not only does Kiefer have new music, so does Fozzie. Fozzie's new single has arrived. It's called Judas. And without further ado, it's making his talk, his Jericho debut right here. Here's Fozzie with Judas. I've become, I've become, I've become it. Check it out. Personified, and I will drag you down and sell you out. Run away. I am cold like December snow. I have carved out this soul made of stone, and I will drag you down and sell you out. Embraced by the Now that I've betrayed everyone I've ever 
right. Woo! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Judas, the new single from Fozzie. Video premiered yesterday at Loudwire. Go check it out at loudwire.com if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, it premiered uh, last week on the BBC Radio 1 Rock Show with Daniel P. Carter. Thanks uh, to him for playing it. Went nuts through the roof. Uh, Eddie Trunk debuted it in the States uh, a few days ago on his Trunk Nation show. That went through the roof. And then obviously Loudwire, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, 100,000 views already of the Judas video. Uh, what did you think? Do you like the song? Hit me up on the Twitter at Fozzie Rock and let me know what you think of Judas. A lot of people are saying it's uh, their favorite Fozzie song ever, uh, maybe of all time. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of great compliments, a lot of great uh, people. I'm going to call you great people. If you like Fozzie, you're a great person. Uh, but like I said, there's a lot of great stuff. Um, uh, Christian Vargas said, what have I become now that I've betrayed everyone I've ever loved? Push them all away. Dude, Fozzie and Judas is the shit. Uh, RJ Belanger said, after listening to Judas 32 times, I can fairly say this is my favorite Fozzie song. Hashtag, what have I become? Uh, Brian Koval said, just heard Judas Fozzie rock. It was epic. Can't wait to hear it live in Green Bay. Hey, it will be Farut, you are right. Uh, Zen Prohoski saw it, cranked it, buying it. Just need Fozzy Rock to tour Judas proper. John G, uh, JG underscore Madness. Just heard the new song on Eddie Trunk. Awesome. Judas is great. Chad the Bad Z-Man. Thank you, Fozzy. My mind is officially blown. New song, Judas Rips. Stoked to see you guys next week in Louisville. So you got a lot of stuff uh, going on here and a lot of uh, peace, love, and hugs uh, and love. Lot of uh, great, uh, great vibe for Judas, which we love. We spent a lot of time on it. It's a dark song. It's still very hooky, as you heard. So we are really, really excited. Uh, Ken Rochford, I Ken Rochford, no surprise. Fozzy Rock new single is badass. Sorry, we will never let you go. You are the man. See you in Patchogue. Man, thank you so much to everybody who's checked out Judas. I hope you liked it. Once again, hit me up on the Twitter at uh, Talk is Jericho at Fozzy Rock and let me know what you think. All right. Um, if you haven't seen the video, go check it out at loudwire.com. Uh, we filmed it at the DDP Yoga Performance Center in Smyrna, Georgia. DDP helping me out again, opening his uh, amazing facility for Fozzy photo shoots, for Fozzy videos. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. It was really, really cool. And also, he's helping me out, keeping me in shape. The DDP Yoga program has kept me at the top of my game in the ring. It's helped me sing better than ever on the upcoming new Fozzie album and on Judas. I can hear it. It's coming from my core. And like I said, we filmed the Judas video at the DDP Performance Center. You hear me say it every single week, but it's the truth. DDP Yoga is not just an amazing fitness program. It's a healthier way to live. DDP has made it so easy for everyone to get on the path to healthier living. Thanks to the DDP Yoga Now app. And with that app, you can do the workouts anytime, anyplace, anywhere, right from your smartphone or tableta. The app's also loaded with nutrition tips, cooking tips, Tips, tools to track your progress and right now ddp is giving you 20 percent off the ddp yoga now app and all ddpy related merch when you go to ddpyoga.com slash jericho you know i'm going to be doing ddpy on the upcoming judas rising tour i've got the ddp yoga now app on my phone so i can do uh, do this workout on the bus backstage at the venue in my hotel room i just open up the app and get to work rich ward's got it on his phone as well we're going to be doing it together uh, ddp yoga on tour all across the united states so take advantage 
advantage of the deal that DDP is offering. 20% off the DDP Yoga Now app and all related merch at ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's 20% off hats, t-shirts, yoga mats, heart monitors, all the swag. Just go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Go check it out. Change your life today and get in the best mental and physical shape ever this is jay moore i have a new sports podcast every day more sports hashtag more sports you don't even have to know anything about sports to love it all you got to know is i get down i tell it like it is i curse i know that's weird and i guarantee you will love it podcast one podcast one app please hit subscribe talk is jericho all right so we're here in toronto with uh kiefer sutherland which is actually funny. I actually did uh, one second of research, and it's Kiefer Wi- <laughs> William Frederick Dempsey George Rufus Sutherland. That's right. That's, That's right. a hell of a name. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's on my my original green card when I was a when I was a baby. I think I was maybe two two years old. They still put the whole name on it, and it went around it went around all the way to the back of the card, and then they just <laughs> ran out of room in it. So it, it always made me laugh. Uh, the jokes that me and my family have always made was that my dad owed a lot of people money. <laughs> and he would just say, you know, I can't pay you for this, but uh, I'll name my first son after you. And so cool. I got all the names. Yeah. <laughs> his buddy, his cousin, yeah. the milkman. Yeah. That's great. But this funny is we actually had met each other years ago because we played together at the Christopher Reeve Super Skate one. That's right. That's right, yeah. In about 2001 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I ended up doing two of those. Yeah. Uh, and some really close friends of mine that I've played hockey with uh, for a long time, uh, Bob Pitts and Dave Anderchuk, were there, and and, uh, and a bunch of guys that we played hockey with for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So those were always, you know, as, as sad as that event was, uh, I had had the real pleasure of meeting Christopher Reeves went on in one of the first plays I had ever done in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Uh, and he was such a generous man and he was such a physical man. Uh, and so for someone like that uh, to suffer that kind of an injury and to know them, mm-hmm. uh, it, was a, it was a really personal thing. And yet he did such great things after he was injured so badly. Uh, and that skate was one of them, and they raised an incredible amount of money. It was huge for you because my mom was in a similar position as Christopher. So oh my when when that offer came up, right, it was a personal thing as well, and right. plus just a shitload of fun yes. to play with everybody. Yeah, it and was. then he was hilarious too. He was amazing. He was amazing, and his wife was so amazing. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, yeah. Just their whole family. Um, it's it's funny that you brought that up because uh, I'm in the middle of production and sometimes that gets stressful and and that story just alone right there put everything into perspective i've got no problems at all it's amazing when you see that when you think about that too yeah he was taking the piss out of us too he said um he goes i'd rather be here with you than the finest people on earth like that's right all these dudes hanging around and he like i'll never forget how 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 big he was in in the chair like yeah like you said he was was a big big guy guy. he was a big guy he was superman yeah 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 a very I have a younger brother uh, I won't I have three actually and I won't name which one but I remember he got in trouble at school because he told all his friends everyone at school you know uh, knew our dad was an actor but we were so young and they obviously couldn't go see his films so they didn't know who he was and my younger brother one of them and told everybody that he was his dad was Superman his dad was Christopher Reeves <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he got in a lot of trouble for that <laughs> 
Well, and that's funny too because I'm um, talking with you, and obviously your dad is Donald, Donald Sutherland, mm-hmm. who still to this day, one of the creepiest moments of my life as a kid, probably six or seven, was an invasion of the body. Snatchers. Yeah, and at the end, yeah, when he screams, when and he's just like, and he points his finger. Yeah, well, basically, uh, for anybody who's listening through the whole story, you think that he is safe and that he hasn't He's the been, hero of the he film. hasn't been invaded uh by the aliens and another woman who survives uh as well tries to confide in him that she's all right and he has been occupied yeah if you will and it's scared that scared the life out of me too you too yeah, because we're, yeah. we're, we're similar in ages uh, i'm 46 i think you're 40 uh, um, yeah i'm not so there yeah that time frame that movie was terrifying because I'll never I still see the image now to ask you this because that's your dad mm-hmm. and my dad used to play for the New York Rangers mm-hmm. the LA Kings and everyone was so excited it's like oh my gosh Ted Irvin's your dad and for me it was like that's just my dad it's mm-hmm. not a deal now as an adult I realize just how, yeah. cool, how good he was and how much influence mm-hmm. he had was it the same for you when you were growing up well I grew up with my mom so it okay. was a little different and I was very aware that my dad was a big deal. I mean, any time I spent with him, you could just see the way other people behaved around him. But I had a very cathartic moment when I was about 18 years old. And when I was growing up, uh, there was no such thing as DVR or VHS or, you know, compact discs or anything. Uh, if you wanted to go see a movie, and it really separated movies from television. For me... If you wanted to go see a movie, you if you wanted to see Paul Newman or my dad or Robert Redford or Elliot Gould, anybody at that time in the 70s, you had to go see the movie. There yeah. was no rerun. They weren't going to play it on television anytime soon. You never knew if you'd ever see it again. Yeah. And so, so when my, you know, growing up, I wasn't allowed to go see those films. So when I turned 18, I, I was in California. I was around 17, 18 years old. And a great friend of my father's and my mom's, a wonderful writer by the name of Charlie Dennis, uh, let me stay at his house for the first few weeks when I got there. And he had the first VHS player I'd ever seen, and he had all these homemade movies. Uh, I don't know how he did it. I'm sure it was quite illegal. Uh, But he had almost all of my father's films. And so in maybe two or three days I watched films like uh, Bertolucci's 1900 Fellini's Casanova uh, MASH Don't Look Now Ordinary People uh, films that I had not seen before and two things came out of that A I really understood how diverse my father was as an actor Uh, the characters and the look of the characters and the sound of the characters was very different from film to film he was a real character actor in a leading position and it shaped the kind of actor I wanted to be. And the other thing was this incredible guilt that my father was, was I think, one of the most prolific and important actors in the English language. And I didn't even know that till I was 18, and I felt awful about that. And I remember phoning him up to apologize mm. and said, I've just watched all of these films of yours, and I'm embarrassed as your son to not know that you've done such important and great work. And he was really sweet. He said, oh, my gosh, how could you? And he, and he kind of defended me. And, and, but it was really the beginning of our adult relationship. Uh, and so I remember that as a really fond kind of moment. But I certainly understand where you're coming from when you look in hindsight and go, 
I, I must have been an awful son not knowing how special my dad was. I don't know if it's awful so much because I get that with my kids where you're just dad and that's the way mm-hmm. it should be. Like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, Chris Jericho's your dad and they're like, yeah, yeah he's my dad. And yeah. He farts and he yeah. embarrasses us in public, you know, but... Wow, that's... You, you, yeah. That's my dad. Yeah. <laughs> I um, Actually, this is a really ridiculous story. Back when we still carried DVDs, if you wanted to watch a movie on the road, I happened, I'm not even, I was watching JFK, which has the greatest Donald Sutherland monologue, yeah. monologue ever. Yeah. And I swear to God, I was watching it and I had taken a break and I was on a flight to LA or something and sitting right behind me is Donald Sutherland. Yeah. I, was like, I can't believe it. So I said, you know, the typical thing. What do you say? I'm a fan. I'm, I love your work in JFK. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. He's nice. But I was like, I'm actually watching it right now. He's like, what? I said, I pulled yeah. the DVD out. So I'm like, I mean, he's gone. So he signed it for me. So oh, like, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I had a very funny moment on a plane. This is not a good thing to say, but uh, planes are awful for me just because as a smoker, it's it's just... You're, you're stuck ostracized you're now, stuck yeah. in a in a thing for a long time in the process of going through an airport uh, and you think i had to quit by now but anyways i have a habit of getting on a plane and kind of going right to sleep and i curl up and and it's kind of not easy to see me and i was sitting like that on a plane and, and we took off and i kind of stirred around and woke up looked up and sitting right next to me was my dad and he didn't even recognize me either so i remember it just scared the crap out of both of us and and i remember it made the stewardess laugh so hard that the two of us she thought we had planned to sit next yeah, to each other and, and I, I was like maybe i'm on the wrong plane uh, dreaming yeah it was very funny do you want a beautiful lawn Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Well, we're here in Toronto because you said you're filming Designated Survivor, mm-hmm. which is uh, another a long list of, of, of hits for you. And uh, been you, very fortunate with it. Yeah, yeah actually, actually, it's unbelievable to have uh, the career longevity that you had, especially starting out basically as a teenager. Yeah, and yeah. to be able to have longevity and keep points about you. I'm the luckiest guy I know. Because <laughs> you know. a lot of guys that start out early in their life go off the rails a little bit at times. Well, it's not, not even so much off the rails. It's, it's, uh, I've been keenly aware of the fact, and whether it's a film or television, and maybe even more television, uh, people invite you into their homes. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. And I've been aware of that for a long time. And, and I've been lucky enough to have the opportunities to kind of stay afloat and and i would be lying if i didn't say over the 30 years there weren't moments where it was looking you know rather bleak Mm -hmm. and i've just been lucky enough to have managed to survive that i also had the great fortune of working with some amazing people uh you know i did stand by me with rob reiner uh through a time when i wasn't working as much he pulled me back in to do a few good men i did lost boys with joel schumacher Mm -hmm. And another time when I really needed the help, he brought me into Flatliners. Another time when I needed the help, he brought me in a, to A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey and Sandra Bullock. At another time when I needed the help, he had me do phone booth. You know, so the fact that I've, I was lucky enough to work with people that also continued working, mm-hmm. 
not only were they great friends and, and, and people in my lives, but they were a unique safety net. So it's not something I certainly take credit for. I, I, I am keenly aware that I have been really fortunate to have had these opportunities. And then what's interesting is after 30 years, you really do acquire some knowledge about what you're doing. And, and, and then you can actually start to, you know, 24 might have been the first opportunity where I got to really kind of express myself as an actor, but I also had some production skills and I also understood how to shoot things. And, and, and so I, I think I became more valuable as an actor in that regard, or at least I hope so. And, and I hope that, you know, I hope for the same kind of success with designated survivor and, and maybe in many cases, maybe television has been a really special fit for me because mm -hmm. I like to work a lot. And all of those things that you kind of learn and pick up along the way uh, become very invaluable when you're making a show because the schedule is just that much more amped up than anything else you can do in my line of work. It also makes you more valuable if you know a little bit about production or directing or because you can get the shots done quicker and you know where to be. and You know where to focus your energy, right, certainly, right, at least yeah. that, yeah. Designated Survivor is interesting to me because it's about... Uh, is it a real thing? It's a yes. The designated survivor is, is in the Constitution. It's not an amendment. It was in the original Constitution. Uh, and, and basically, at any gathering or state of the union of the government and all branches of the government, for instance, the president's annual state of the union is, is one of those events, they will have to have a designated survivor from each party. Uh, and the reason for that is, is after the American Revolution, there were still a lot of people that were very loyal to Britain living in the United States. And the fear is that in the Capitol building, which at that time was wood, all it would take was a couple broomsticks through the door handles, locking everybody in and setting the whole thing alight. Good point. And unless you had a representative of the government to protect the line of succession, of succession to the presidency, everything that was fought for could have been taken away. And so that's the reason that was there. What's interesting about our show is that obviously over time that's not a that has become a non reality. Mm -hmm. And I think in the context of our show, being appointed the designated survivor is not necessarily the enviable position. It's kind of like Cinderella not being invited right. to the ball. Uh, was he like the, uh, the the guy in charge of tourism or something? Or what, was yeah. he well, my travel? my character is is the head of urban housing and development. There you go, right? And uh, <laughs> doesn't roll off easily for the tongue, and it's not flashy. Although it, I have to say, in following through with my research, it's a really important position. But my character was about to be fired, <laughs> and so that was their way of kind of putting him in the closet. And then by virtue of the terrible circumstances in the opening of the show, the Capitol building is bombed and, and he becomes president overnight. And I have to say, just again, only through research, I don't think it's a job a lot of people would want. And, and what's interesting that we're, we're going to examine through the season is, is just that, is the really difficult effects uh, and sometimes terrible effects that that will have on a family mm -hmm. and the sense of responsibility and weight. I mean, when you take a look at President Obama or President Bush, uh, even President Clinton, you know, the people that did eight years, President Obama's hair went gray, I think, in oh, 20 minutes. Unbelievable, you know? right? Uh, yeah. And it's just, and these are really strong people. And it's just amazing to see the wear on on 
three relatively healthy, not, not even relatively, three healthy guys just see that, yeah. and, and just what it does to them. So it's an interesting thing to examine in any other situation in American history. And in reality, you know, someone goes through a really long process through a campaign and, and all th- sorts of things. And they, they, the sacrifices start to mount up mm-hmm. before you even get to the presidency. But clearly they wanted that because they gave up so much to do it. My character didn't want it at all and now is saddled with the responsibility. And it's just, I think, is a really interesting perspective on the office and then what someone can do with government that has limited experience. It's, it's a great idea for a show, too, and the fact that it actually exists is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And also, too, both of us are transplanted Canadians, and we're in mm-hmm. Toronto now, but mm-hmm. I live in Florida. I'm sure you live in L.A. Yeah. But we're Canadians now in the, you know, American political structure. Yeah. There's a little bit of a difference because Canada is – it's not as much of a political country as the United States is. Well, it is. It just has very different ideals, and, and, and you have to understand – I mean, Canada is very different. My father had, I think, the best explanation, the difference between Canadians and Americans. And if you take a look at over history, uh, American children, they grew up on Dimeback novels, and they were always going for Jesse James or Billy the Kid, and those were their heroes. Mm-hmm. They were outlaws, you know, and that very American in its spirit. You know, this small country, 13 colonies, had the audacity to fight the British for their own independence. I mean, that's a, that's a real significant aspect of American culture. And even though it's 250 years old, it's really important to know that that's at the root Mm -hmm. of what it is, in my opinion, to be an American. In my opinion, it's almost opposite to be a Canadian. When we were growing up, the hero was the Mountie. (laughs) <laughs> he was the policeman. He was the constable. And in my classroom, we had a picture of the queen. Uh, and there was a real reverence for that. And Canada made a very conscious choice to stay loyal to England. There was no war for its independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically came in a letter in the 40s. <laughs> uh, we would like that. And they wrote back, good luck. And, and that was that. So the nature of how Canada was born is just so dynamically different than the nature of how America was born, and it's had an, an incredible impact on its people and, and politics. And, well, I, yeah, I, my dad came I up with it. So, that, yeah. and, and, but the second he said it, I really agreed with it because, uh, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just a very different kind of way uh, that the two countries came to be. I remember uh, in elementary school, we used to have to sing God Save the Queen mm-hmm. at the end of the school day. Yeah, yeah. Here we are in Canada singing yeah. God Save Our yeah. Precious Queen. Yeah. We yeah. have to do that too? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's like it is yeah. a really – Commonwealth is a very strange yeah. concept for, for, for and Americans. It's, and so and, – and, and, you know, and it was a very powerful concept in the United States too. It just was not as powerful as the ideal of revolution and independence. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that's something – to be very proud of, I think. I, I think Americans should be very proud of that. Now you're working on on Designated Survivor, and these are long days. It's a long shoot. Too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's six months, seven months. Well, months. it's very funny. My you know my daughter works on a show called Veep. I remember uh, when all the guys on Sopranos we were doing 24 at the same time, and they were talking about their schedule, and I'm like, you guys do 11 episodes. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> we do 24 a year. Right. So, yeah, it's an, and Designated Survivor will do 22 a year. Mm-hmm. So it is very different. A lot of the cable shows now, they only do 10. Right. You know, uh, Game of Thrones is 10 episodes. Uh, so when you think of kind of doing over double that, 
uh, and you're doing it every year, it ends up kind of being almost 10 months a year, five, six days a week, 15 hours a day. And the one thing that I do have to tell, you know, kind of, again, anyone out there listening is that uh, I can kind of complain about my schedule to a certain degree, (laughs) but always know that there's a man or a woman on our crew that's really pulling, Mm. you know, almost a quarter more hours than I am. Right. And and so, uh, you know, if we ever lucky enough to win an award for something or you're ever in an interview and you start hearing an actor talk about how great their crew is, they mean it. Yeah, it's uh, not Because they hold you together. It goes for- in, a te- in a television show specifically, I think on 24, I think there was over 30 marriages mm-hmm. that we all went to from our crew. Oh, wow, yeah. I think over 40, 40 children were born <laughs> in the eight years that we made that show. And it's just a unique experience. It's not like making a film where you're finished in three months. Mm-hmm. This went for eight years. Uh, we knew each other's kids, in some cases grandkids. Three people died over the course of making 24. That was really hard for everybody. Uh, so it really does become a family. And it's not trite. It's, it's a real thing because you actually spend more time with those people than you do at home. It's the truth. And, uh, and I find most people in, in the working day, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're working nine to five, a, a straight eight-hour shift, between that and the hockey practices and the thing that you're going with your kids and that by the time you get home to see your wife or your husband, you've really got maybe, if you're lucky, a couple hours. Yeah. And so in many ways, uh, those relationships that are formed at work and certainly in my experience, uh, they become a surrogate family. Sure. And when yeah. we'll, you know, even when you're on the road, we'll talk about, about your music too because I'm in a band as well. And when you go on tour to Europe mm-hmm. for four weeks, mm-hmm. You got you know the five guys in the band. You got the six guys on the crew, and there's yeah. some guys in the crew that I hang out with more than the guys in the band. Yeah, like, not that it's just some. It's guys just how it goes. With. Yeah, and it's like if we do a tour, I'm not going out without my drummer, but I'm also not going out without my tour manager. Right, right, he's right. Part of the absolutely. Part of the band. Absolutely. It's the same when you're filming a show, who your, your DP is or the director or whoever it may be, the showrunner becomes like everyone's working together absolutely. in front and behind. Right? Absolutely. If, if it's going to work, it has to it has to function like that. You know, and I. When you start thinking of bands like the Rolling Stones that have managed to survive as long as they have, they have figured out how to do that. Uh, And and you'll hear everyone in that band talk about Ronnie Wood is the glue Mm -hmm. that holds that band together. Uh, But there are also crew people in other groups. I would expect in that 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 allow that to function, and it's no different uh, on the set. If you see the Stones, if you ever go to the show and you look at the soundboard, you'll see the guy behind that. He's probably I don't know. He's probably the same age as Mick, maybe not as yeah. old, but he's white hair. I'm sure he's been with them for, for thirty for, years, yeah. well, and they're not going to do a show without him. You know? Yeah, no, and it's 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 that important, and and all of those all of those other positions uh, mm-hmm. certainly on twenty four. We had one of the greatest camera crews I've ever worked with in my life. One of the great grip crews. I mean, that was the best crew I'd ever worked with. Mm -hmm. And we had learned to work together over eight years in a way that made us so efficient that the idea of starting anything new like Designated Survivor was always really daunting because that was having to take on another project without what felt like your left and right hand. And, you know, and and it's a process. It's a process. you know, when we were doing 24, we didn't start out like that. First year's hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this is no different. Do you want a beautiful lawn? 
Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk about 24. I mean, you've done a lot of great stuff, and I want to talk about a few of the things you mentioned already. But 24 was like like a cultural revolution. Like it was, it's iconic. It became like so much a part of the American fabric for all of the 2000s, basically. It, what, what was it about that show that was so... I think it was a variety of things. And one of them, if I could take back, I would take back, you know, if, if I had the power to take it that back, I would. We had shot about four months of 24 before the terrible events of 9-11. Mm. And I remember there was a moment... Uh, especially because the opening episode of 24 actually had to deal with a hijacked jet and and all of this other stuff. And it was just completely a fluke. I mean, no one in their wildest dreams thought any of this stuff could happen. But tragically, it did. And, And I think Fox as a network questioned whether or not they should even put it out. And I think they tested it with people and their reaction to it was really positive. And I think the reason why their action was really positive, I certainly remember feeling incredibly helpless. I remember feeling incredibly angry after 9-11 and heartbroken, too. I remember a specific image that I'll never get out of my head. And I remember waking up. Someone phoned me and woke me up. And in Los Angeles, it was about 5 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at the second tower after it had been hit. And a couple, they were stranded. There was no way. There was fire above them. There was fire below them. And in my head, I had just made up that they really didn't even know each other very well. And they had to make a choice between burning to death or jumping to their death. And they just looked at each other and they grabbed each other's hands and they jumped. I had just gotten divorced at that time. I don't think I called my ex-wife. I don't think I ever felt closer to her or my children or anything. There was something about that image and the tragedy of that day, I think, that made everybody come closer together. Having said that, I also remember feeling really helpless. There was nothing you could do to immediately fix it. It wasn't like someone picked on your sister at school and then you went and found the guy and did something about it. I felt really helpless. And then all of a sudden this show had this character that was fighting these insurmountable odds and doing that kind of stuff. And I think certainly in the beginning year or two, I think people really appreciated that that there were people out there in the world that were doing this. And the reality is with 24, there are real people that are in fact doing that. Mm-hmm. I remember meeting a gentleman from the CIA who was not a spy, but he was actually an operative, a counter-terrorist operative. And he was kidding me about how great Jack Bauer was. And I was saying, you know, with all respect, I mean, I take it, you know, to the people that really do this for a living, I take my hat off to you in deepest respect. And he said, no, 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 I, I really love the show, but if you wouldn't mind calling up my mom and telling her why I don't get stuff done as quickly as Jack Bauer, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> and so I remember laughing about that. But I think, you know, it was a lot of things. It, it, I also, it was very good story writing from the writers and, and things like that. But, but 
there were certain events that were taking place for real in the world mm -hmm. that made the show incredibly timely. And it was also part of a real transition in television period. Uh, alongside it, you had The Sopranos, which was one of my favorite shows. You had another HBO show called The Wire, which is still, I think, my favorite show. Yeah. Uh, then you had great comedies like Sex and the City, and, and just television was just changing. Uh, and it was a direct result of the film industry changing. When I was growing up and when I started working, there was five studios that would make... 50, well, they would make 52 to 56 films a year, one for each weekend and then a couple uh, for the holidays. And now there's really two studios wow. and, and then a couple independent companies. Mm -hmm. And they make 15 big movies a year. Well, eventually those writers are going to go somewhere to work. And they went to television. And television dynamically changed as, as a result of that. And then you watched a lot of actors that you would only see in films start to do television. And television just became really exciting. I mean, and West Wing was another show which designated Survivor parallels on some level, you know. So there was just, it was just a time where a lot of exciting new stuff was being done. It's interesting because before, you know, to go on television, like in the 70s or 80s, it was almost like not a step down, but it was like, well, he's not making movies anymore. Well, in the 70s, it was definitely a step, a step down, down and right? it was death. Yeah, I mean, if again, like I said earlier, if you wanted to go see Paul Newman, you had to get off your butt and you had to go down to the theater right. and you had to watch him. You know, now it's completely different. Well, it's like the gold. It's like the new golden age of television that started basically in two thousand one, two, and all the way up to now. Yeah. You mentioned Game yeah. of Thrones or most, Dead. and most people are watching movies at home anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, most people have a better sound system yeah. and a better screen than some of the smaller theaters that you'll go to you're right, these days. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you this about 24. Um, the, the original concept was that it was 24 episodes that would be in real lifetime. You would start and at 12 it, it p.m. Would be and a, go, it would be a full day. How do you prepare? Let's say you're on show 18. You've mm -hmm. been up for 18 hours, your character. How do you prepare for it? Were you staying up and not sleeping? Or no, no, that? no. But you have, to, you have to be constantly aware of exactly what hour you're in. Uh, so, for instance, in, in season one, there's a moment where in the, in the 16th hour, he's desperately fighting not to fall asleep. And, in fact, he does fall asleep. And the woman where he's trying to hide that he's holding kind of hostage runs out of the little shed that they're in and, and rats him out. Mm -hmm. So that played a part in, the, in that episode. Normally, by the time the show got to episode 18, 19, 20, Everything was kind of coming on, and and you hear this in in stories. Whether it's you hear it from firefighters, you hear it from police officers who might be involved in a bank siege, uh, and mostly you'll hear it from soldiers that are in battle. Mm -hmm. uh, that sometimes they would not sleep for thirty six hours. Mm -hmm. So the circumstances are what keep you awake and you just have to recall that and figure out how you want to play that. It's interesting because we had a pay-per-view here yesterday at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto mm -hmm. and by circumstances I had to go to New York on Saturday and I had a 6 a.m. flight and that was a long day of traveling so mm -hmm. I only had about an hour and a half of sleep mm -hmm. and then went and had like a 52-minute match and didn't feel tired the whole time. It's a very interesting point. Once yeah. you get in it, yeah. there's no... then. After it was done, I was just drained. Yeah, just done. Yeah, right. Yeah, but it's interesting. It's, I used to say that Jack Bauer is the most unluckiest guy ever. Like every few months, he has the worst day of his life. Yeah, right. Well, and I think uh, <laughs> when people ask me, "Why didn't you keep doing the show?" 
I would have loved to have done the show till the day I died. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that character, and I and and I, I love the people that I was working with, and 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 the audience that enjoyed that show. It's been incredibly gracious to me. But let's be honest: how many bad days can one guy have? <laughs> yeah. And at some point, you know, it starts. To, we did nine nine seasons, and at one point, you know, probably around episodes season six i'm like okay this is getting a little long in the tooth so i i i kind of decided to not do the show more almost out of respect to the character and what the show meant for me and i had always said uh that i felt the show was the idea of the show was the real star mm-hmm. was there ever talk about doing a movie 24 movie talked about talked about talked about a lot mm-hmm. yeah you know I, I mean and i could never i never understood why it wasn't uh especially in the earlier days uh but you know there's so many there's so many reasons why something doesn't work there's very few reasons why something does yeah especially when you're talking about hollywood because yeah it's it's complicated and companies have movie divisions and television Mm -hmm. divisions and they might not all get along so is that a character you would ever revisit at some point I've learned to never say never with that one because, you know, when I finished season eight, I said I was never going to do it mm-hmm. again. And and they came up with what I thought was a really cool idea in England. And the truth is I did it because I missed the people mm-hmm. that I was working with and John Kassar, director, and Howard Gordon. And and I had a, I had and still have a really, really good relationship at, at 20th Century Fox. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was a decade of my life. I remember I was looking at a picture of my daughter from season one and... She looked like just such a cute little girl and her pigtails. And, you know, I think she still was carrying around a dolly. <laughs> and then, you know, by the end of it, she was graduating at, <laughs> it's 10 at, years, at, at, at NYU, you know. Wow, yeah. And so that put a perspective of how, how much time that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One last question about your movie work, and I want to talk to you about your music, too. Sure. Um, you talk about you mentioned Stand by Me, Stand by Me, and Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about '80s movies, those are two of the top top classics with two of the great characters that you played. And I had Will Wheaton on the show. And oh, was, cool! Yeah, great guys, you know. And was talking about how much Stand by Me to this day still is so special in his heart. Yeah. Did you feel the same about those about those two films? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. And and Stand by Me specifically because Stand by Me was the first film. Actually, it was the second film. Sean Penn hired me for my first film called At Close Range. But I literally left the set. Uh, the reason why my hair was kind of this weird orange in Stand By Me was because in the film I did with Sean Penn, it was black. Mm-hmm. And so I rapped at night on the Sean Penn film, and they tried to dye my hair back to blonde, but it wouldn't all come out. <laughs> so it ended up this kind of odd orange color. And then I got on a plane, went to Oregon, and literally got off the plane and started shooting Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you're not going to do anything about my hair? And Rob Reiner went, nah, it's different enough, I'll go with it. <laughs> and so I, I was always embarrassed about that. <laughs> but uh, but that's why. And and so, the you know, kind of one of the coolest things and luckiest things, again, I told you earlier how fortunate I've been, to have Rob Reiner as the first american director that you work with you couldn't ask for more Mm -hmm. because that became the measure for everything else it either was run as well as that was and was as articulate as that was and you had a sense of being safe in that environment and everything or it wasn't Mm -hmm. so you could learn very quickly i thought i could learn very quickly if a director actually really knew what they were doing Mm -hmm. and then 
to then go from that, did a couple things in between, but pretty much, pretty quickly after that, I went into Lost Boys with Joel Schumacher, who again was one of those guys. In fact, I can tell you a story about Flatliners that still makes me laugh to this day. And I wasn't much older. I was about 22 by then. And I had just come back from England. I was, had done a film there. And when I had read the script, I, I had read it as kind of a real straight drama. Uh, the medical school was just a regular medical school. And the laboratory that they did the experiments in was a regular mm-hmm. laboratory. It didn't look like it was out of a Bon Jovi concert. <laughs> And I remember I was doing this one scene. It was the first scene I was doing, and I, I ran by this giant box, and it had 50 rubber gloves sticking out of it. And I was like, what the is that? And I'm, but I'm still running. And then over to my left, I see a huge imitation statue of Liberty's head. I'm like, what the? And by the time I turn the corner and get to where we're going to do the experiment, the gurney is over a grate. Wind is blowing up through the grate, and it's flashing yellow and red and blue lights. It was the dirtiest place to ever do an experiment ever. And I, and I remember thinking, I can't do this. I, and I, I kind of had a small, mini nervous breakdown, and I walk out, and I look at Joel Schumacher, and I said, I'm so sorry you got the wrong guy. I, I can't do this. And he looked at me, and he said, Kiefer, you're going to have to trust me. And if you don't think I wake up every day, knowing that I've got your future in my hands mm. and that I don't handle that, that, that I take that on as my responsibility. You're crazy. I do. And you're just going to have to go with me. And I ended up finishing that film, and it was one of the few films I went to see because I had to kind of see how it worked. And it's one of the few films I've done that I could tell you that I was really, really mm. proud of. And I phoned him up right away. In fact... You know, I think at that time Julie and I were, were were together, still together, and and I and I think she had a fancy phone in her car. You know? Julie Roberts, yeah, and, early and, cell phone, and yeah, early, it was a brick. <laughs> and uh, but I remember phoning him up on the way home, and I said, uh, "I am so glad that you told me to trust you, because not only do I feel really lucky to have been a part of this film and this experience." Uh, but I really loved the film and what it had to say, and you were absolutely right. If it had not been so kind of wild-looking, the premise would have just been ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So it kind of fit that way, and so I learned a lot. And that's that's really kind of been my experience. I've I've been lucky enough to work with really incredibly talented and intelligent people, and I've been lucky to take some of that with me Mm -hmm. from them. It's interesting, too, as artists, sometimes we don't see the big picture, the visionary of the producer or the director, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it may be, the booker in wrestling is mm-hmm. what it's called. But like you said, sometimes if you don't think and just just go with it, yeah. nine times out of ten, the visionaries yeah. are pretty right. Yeah, if you're with the right person. Yeah. I've so, also been a part of a couple projects <laughs> yeah. where yes. uh, I decided to go with it, and, and man, I could have dug to China. Yeah. It wouldn't get out. <laughs> also, uh, for, the, for, for Ace and Stand By Me, I always kind of envision like in the Lost Boys, it's almost aces of vampire. They're very mm-hmm. similar characters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, both evil guys and very kind of sarcastic and very kind of. I think sexy. The, uh, I think Lost Boys had a little more charm mm. and and charm. I guess is he was more charming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ace was just a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any uh, interaction with Stephen King? Did he come to the set at all, or was he just canceled? No, but I, I heard a wonderful story. So Ray Gideon and Bruce Evans. Uh, wrote Stand By Me and it was originally called The Body Yeah, and The Body was a short story that Stephen King had written and they had adapted it mm-hmm. 
and I had heard that when they showed it to him, and uh, uh, so it was the two writers and Rob Reiner and Stephen King in the screening room, that Stephen King actually cried. Mm. And because it was a story of his childhood. Mm. And I was really proud of that. And that uh, I have heard him say that it was his favorite film of anything he had ever written. So I was very proud to be a part of that for that. Because, you know, that's a badass talent right there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it is the best Stephen King uh, translation from the novel to the movies. Well, I'll uh, (laughs) I'll let Ray and Bruce know. So another reason why I really was interested in, in talking with you is another similarity we have is we're both musicians. Mm-hmm. We both have bands. You know, you're a solo artist, but and I listened to some of your stuff. The album is called Down in a Hole mm-hmm. and uh, Not Enough Whiskey. It's old school country, mm-hmm. a little bit of a Tom Waits vibe. Mm-hmm. It's really good. How Thank long you have you so been much. playing for? And it seems like now you're kind of really working on that a lot as well. Um, I've been playing forever, mm-hmm. uh, or what feels like forever. When I was, I started playing violin when I was four. Violin? My, my mom wanted me to play violin. And then by the time I was about seven, I really wanted to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I'll make you a deal. If you play violin until you're 10, I'll get you a guitar. <laughs> so I played violin right up until my 10th birthday. I never picked another one up again until I was in my 30s. Uh, but I got a guitar, and I fell in love with it. And it was a great thing for me. So I like to spend a fair amount of time alone. And... It was a great thing to occupy that time uh, for me. Uh, and then just over time, I mean, music has always been so important to me just as a, as a person, as a listener. Uh, I would rather listen to an album than see a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of what I do for a living, music has had a greater impact on me. Uh, I can hear a David Bowie song and I can remember the first time I heard it. I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember the girl I was trying to get. All of it. It's a time machine. Uh, Music ab- a time machine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'm a nostalgic person, so it's a perfect fit. Uh, and just like time kind of makes one's memories kind of softer and better, uh, I think music does that in a very big way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just thought, Certainly through the 70s, 80s, and, and, and 90s, there were certain bands I just thought were cool, and they would define... Art, to me, was always meant to define how you lived, how you thought, your perspective on what was right and wrong, all of those things, what you thought was cool to wear, the way you would be intimate with another person, all of those things I felt would be shaped by art. For me, music was what did that. Mm-hmm. So certainly through the late 70s, early 80s, the androgyny of a David Bowie was something that was incredibly important to me. But it was only made important because I had such a reaction to his lyrics and the way he sang things. Time takes a cigarette, puts it in your mouth, and pull on a number, then another number. I mean, they spoke to me in a really strong way from the time I was like 16, 17, 18 years old. The rebelliousness of the Rolling Stones and the Kinks, the virtuosity of the Beatles uh, and Elton John. Uh, so right there you're talking about a huge cross-section of music that's very different and yet somehow through that time it was all made palatable you know you could love the police in one hand and then the clash in the other and still 
Tears for Fears was actually a great band, but I and and and, and Soft Cell wasn't awful, but you know, <laughs> but it was a really pop thing, and you'd still kind of. You could get it. You'd get it, yeah. yeah as long as you were alone in your car, <laughs> yeah. you know. That, you know. Yeah. So I just, I just loved it. I just, I loved music, and I, and I felt that musicians, very much like hockey players, actually, had to invest so much to even begin. And I do not mean this as a slight to acting in any stretch, because I think it is an incredibly complicated and intricate craft. But let's face it, we all walk and talk, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so for me, I don't want to take anything away from a soccer player who's running up and down a field for 90 minutes trying to put a ball that's a foot in diameter mm-hmm. into a 30-foot net. Right. I'm not going to make fun of that at all. <laughs> or a 7-foot basketball player trying to put a ball in a 7-foot-4 hoop. Right. I'm not going to make fun of that at all. Try doing any of those sports on skates. And then try walk, then throw up some boards and have some guy come at you at a 40 <laughs> miles an hour and put you through those bolts. Yeah. So for me, hockey players had to really make an investment in learning a bunch of things before they could even be considered whether or not they would be able to right. go pro. Good, yeah. You know, uh, I felt that same way about musicians. Mm. They had to really work on a craft. Uh, there are people that have real talent singing, but until you actually start to really work on that vocal ethic and how to train your voice and how to manipulate your voice to mm-hmm. what you want to do it, and again, I don't care whether it's Tom Waits or Whitney Houston, they both are doing something very Absolutely. specific that's not easy to do. Uh, guitar players, bass players, drummers, keyboard players. Um, that's years and years of work. To even get to a place to find out, I mean, how awful must that be when you were actually a fantastic piano player and you, get to, and, and you invest 10 years, 20 years of playing, and then you find out you can't write a song to save your life. Right. So it's, I just think it's, there's a blind faith that is required for a musician to become a musician mm-hmm. and a credible one. Uh, so I've always had great respect for them for that. And it's also why I was had no intention of ever making an album or doing anything like that. Uh, but the truth is I had a label that I was trying to help other artists with. Uh, you owned a label? You started yeah, a label? Okay. And, uh, What's the had, label called? Uh, it was called Ironworks. Okay. And we had Rocco DeLuca and the Bird. And we had Honey Honey, Billy Boy on Poison. We had some fantastic, fantastic uh, Ron Sexsmith. We had fantastic mm. artists. And when I was watching all of these different artists record, uh, and the studio was part of my, you know, where I lived, this warehouse that I lived in, I would start to see the different ways with which people wrote. And I started picking up on that. Oh, that, that makes sense. Well, okay, well, I'm not going to start with a verse. I'm going to actually start with a chorus, and I'm going to wrap the two verses around that chorus. And, and so I'd write a few songs like that. And then uh, I'd see someone else, Ron Sexsmith, he'd actually find a really nice guitar riff, and he'd shape everything around that for one song. Uh, and yet his lyrics then would come after, and they were so important that you would have to believe that that's how he started the song. So I go, oh, no, but it wasn't. He was inspired by a groove. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and everybody had a different way. And, and, and in many cases, the songs, they didn't write every song the same way. So I would pick up little things that was working for me, and I started writing a lot. And my intention was, you know, if I was really lucky, maybe, maybe Sony or I, I get a writing deal, mm-hmm. and and someone else would do some of my songs. Sure. Publishing and, deal. And so, I gave, uh, I took a couple songs. Not enough whiskey wasn't one of them. I think calling out your name was one, and can't stay away. And I went to Jude's studio, and Jude was my best friend for thirty years. 
Uh, he's the guy I started the label with. Uh, and I said, look, I want to record a couple of these just rough demos, and I want to send them to a couple publishing companies and see if they can get some of their artists interested in maybe doing them. And so we recorded the first couple songs, and he said, look, these, these clearly are personal songs to you, and they're clearly about you and your life, and he knew me well enough to know that. Both of those songs specifically, one's about a bar and the other's about a girl that I'll, I'll <laughs> stop there? right there. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so he said, I think you should do these, and I think you should you know, consider making a record. And I was like, and I had another band, I mean, but we were mainly a cover band. Mm -hmm. And so he knew about that. And I, I said, no way, I, I would never do it. And Jude's pretty clever, and I'm not very complicated. So he said, okay, I get it. And he took me to a bar, and we hadn't seen each other for a while. And he, we had a few drinks, and I got a little drunk. And all of a sudden, it started sounding like a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we did a couple more songs. And, and then we ended up doing about 14, 15 tracks. And I picked the 11 that I wanted for the record. And, and again, it wasn't something like, we're not going after airplay. We're not going after this or that. I'm using it as a justification to tour. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as long as it's living within those parameters and I get to play, mm -hmm. I'm thrilled. You know? Do you find, like, because I know you do be doing some shows and playing some festivals and stuff like that, do you find that sometimes like, people are a little bit wary at first? I know with us, our band is... Oh, yeah, I, I, I liken it to a NASCAR race. They're coming for the wreck. Yeah, you know? great Absolutely. Yeah. I don't care why you come. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want you to shoot me, <laughs> but I, don't, I really don't care why you come. It's my job. It's my band's job. If we haven't got you by the third song, we've screwed up that mm -hmm. night. And I'll take those odds any day of the week. Yeah. I'm really confident about my band. I'm really confident about our show. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll take it, that challenge on any, any It's a day. great point because we have the same, and we've actually we've been doing it for a while. We've had a chance to tour with Kiss and Metallica. And oh, Shine good for and you, those man. Bands. And a lot of times you get the guys with the arms crossed in the front row, and it's yeah. those are my favorite guys. Because yeah. nine times out of ten, by the end of the show, they're into it, they're rocking, they're having fun. Yeah. When they walk in, they might not know, but when they leave, Again. that's the secret. I remember, you know, we just finished a tour. We did 75 dates kind of through the, dates? No yeah, kidding. through the Midwest, and we did it in a really short time. Headlining? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, That's but we a were, lot of shows, man. We were playing, you know, like three, four, five hundred seat bars. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I remember saying on more than one occasion, look, I really don't, you know, if I was doing a radio interview trying to get people to come out to a show, I don't care why you come. And I can't tell you the number of times someone will yell out Jack Bauer in a show or whatever. Yeah. I don't care about that either. I want you to have a good time. Mm -hmm. you yell out whatever you want. And again, if you came, you know, to just say hello because you were a fan of 24 or Lost Boys or whatever, I'm down with that too. But while you're here, <laughs> let me play you a couple songs and see <laughs> yeah. if you like this too. Yeah. And, uh, and I think one of the nice things that I found out about touring was that by the end of the show, I mean, and I do talk a lot about where I was when I wrote this song and why this person broke my heart and or why I lost this person to drinking and and, mm -hmm. and the songs are really from my life I think by the end of it I think people realize that we've got a lot more in common than we thought and there's something really reassuring that about that and if you do that 300 400 people at a time that's a really cool thing I have done some really dumb things over the course of my life paid for them too mm -hmm. and uh and when you share that with people and 
they realize, oh, well, maybe the dumb thing I did wasn't as bad. Mm -hmm. and, and I think if we can figure out how to cut each other a little slack mm -hmm. and give each other a little more understanding than maybe we are at this present day, uh, I think that can only be a good thing. And, and, and to be able to try and use music to get people together to do something like that, I think, is really cool. It takes us all down to the common denominator, even just us talking. You mentioned the police and soft. Like we, like, look, if you're a music, we got fan, one thing in common, all of us. Uh, we're not getting out of here alive, <laughs> and and that's a big thing to have in common with everybody. Dude, that's that's a chorus of a song. We got one thing in common: we aren't getting, out, getting out, of here out of here alive. You better yeah. use that before I do. Okay, I'll, I'll write it down and credit <laughs> you with it. <laughs> but it's true, though. Yeah, and it's and. And we're all trying to do the best for our families and for ourselves and then for our friends. And, and no one's different. No one's... There's very few people, you know, I mean, there are mental health issues out there in the world. But I, I believe that there are very few people that are waking up in the morning going, how can I screw someone over? Mm -hmm. Everybody's really just trying to get by and do their thing. Right. Right. And, uh, and some have an easier time of it than others. I've had, I've been one of, again, I'm the luckiest guy I know. And even being one of the luckiest, the luckiest guy I know, I still had problems. Mm -hmm. And to be able to share those with other people and, and, and other people. I wrote a song about losing someone way too early in life. And I wrote this song called Truth in Your Eyes. And, and this woman came to the show and she had said she'd lost her husband 12 years earlier and never really been able to get over that. And that that song had meant something to her in a really big way. And that it, it was comforting for her to know that she wasn't alone in that kind of grief. Didn't make it better for mm -hmm. her, you know. But for a moment, she didn't feel as alone. And I think music and storytelling can really do that. And, I, and that's why I think films and plays and television work so well, too, is that it makes people realize they're not alone in mm -hmm. what they're going through in their life. Have you had a chance to play any, with any bands that you like or any music artists that you like festivals for example or no i mean the 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 tours that we've done is we, we've we've been it mm -hmm. you know uh had the great fortune of playing in the grand Ole opry a couple times now the Lyman? that's huge it's in nashville yeah. the famous famous yeah. venue yeah, yeah. it's wow. 100 and i think 130 years old everybody's played there and uh well it was my first time how was and it it was amazing. And I mean, everybody that's huge in country music. Is well, it was, it was an it's a big on, deal to be there. It was a real honor for me. And, uh, but there's a kind of community within the music world, and specifically that I saw at, whether it was Opera Land or the Ryman, mm -hmm. the artists are actually rooting for each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a nice thing about doing a review where you go out and you play like four songs, and then Ricky Skaggs comes on and he plays four songs. And, uh, there was this atmosphere backstage that was really foreign to me. Uh, and I just, you know, the acting world's a little different right now. And I think, you know, actors are a little guarded that someone's uh, trying to get my part or okay. stab me in the back or, or something like that. And, uh, whereas in the music world, at least my experience, and, and again, it was really specifically at the Opry. For some reason, your guitar string broke. The guy behind you hands you a guitar, say, use mine, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get this fixed up, and it'll be ready for you in your next song. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just... And I remembered, I used to, I used to competitively team rope uh, on the USTRC circuit. What, and is cowboy, what is team rope? Team roping, there's calf roping and team roping. Oh. It was all for the rodeo. Okay. Uh, and all of those events are, are 
designed basically to teach you how to handle your cattle better when you're a rancher. And I remember uh, during the rodeo, if you know, if a cinch strap broke on your saddle, there'd be a guy there uh, to help you out, even if he was competing with you in the last go round and mm -hmm. uh, something like that. Uh, and so, there's just a genuine kind of goodwill in the spirit of those people. But I really noticed it at the Opry that the artists were really rooting for each other, and, and that was really nice to see. If people know that you have the passion for it, mm -hmm. you know, for, for both of us, we might have to work harder to get respect, but once mm -hmm. you get that respect, you've got it for life, because they know you're doing it for the right reasons, because you love music. Yeah, and in the end, you know, I've chased that respect demon all over the planet, <laughs> and, and I've come to, the conclusion that I've come to at my age is you're running out of time. And as long as you know where you're coming for with it and you can live and go to bed, sleep yes, with yourself right, at right. night, don't let anybody else tell you different. Yeah. You know, it really is that simple. You know, and you know, you can be anywhere from 40 to 50, but you're still looking at 20 good years mm -hmm. where you get to do, you've got the strength and, and, the, and the will and everything else to do what you want. Mm -hmm. It's not a lot of time. And to waste it because you're worried about what someone else will say Great. is a sad tragedy. Yeah. And I was really lucky that I had a good friend take me to a bar and get me drunk and make, <laughs> make a record uh, because that's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. You know. Last couple of questions that just brought me up some of the mind. In the 80s, we're talking about stand-up and you're talking about Lost Boys. You were a rock star, you know, young guy, top of the world. Did you ever hang out with some of the guys in bands? Cause it was um, I didn't really. Okay. Uh, Jude Cole was, you know, he played with Moon Martin and Dwight Twilley. I think he played guitar for Al Green for a mm -hmm. while. Uh, he was my best friend. Okay. But, uh, and John Bon Jovi was actually certainly the, the most successful musician sure. I'd ever known. The and he, and he was amazing, yeah. So he was really good friends with Emilio Estevez. And we were making Young Guns. And he always wanted to be a cowboy. And I also know that John always was really interested in acting and, and theater and film. So he came out. There's actually two people in Young Guns that you will never be able to find. Tom Cruise... Really? Yeah, and John Bon Jovi. And so we put him in beards and all this stuff, and uh, I think we shot Tom off a roof. Was he and, just wanted to hang out with you guys? Yeah, and he, and he and Emilio were really good friends. Gotcha. So I hadn't, met, I hadn't met any of these people. In fact, I had never met Emilio until I was on the set. Same with Charlie. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, they wanted to come and hang out. <laughs> and then the coolest thing I'll remember, and this is when I realized, you know, because John Bon Jovi's got an amazing voice. Mm -hmm. And... Good, good-looking guy. Yeah, you know, and he—he he was a rock star. I mean, you wouldn't go to a Bon Jovi concert because there's no girl that would go home with you after a Bon Jovi <laughs> concert because she'd rather sit in the alley waiting right. in the slim hope that she might even just shake his hand. So it was just like a waste of time. Um, but we finished shooting, and a bunch of us went to a bar, and then we ended up in some diner in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's got to be two two o'clock in the morning. A couple burgers on the table, and John Bon Jovi. John looks up at Emilio and says, uh, "I want to do the music for the sequel." Oh. And Emilio says, "Well, we're not even halfway through filming this one. I don't know if there's going to be a sequel." And John looks at Emilio, like, "Don't be stupid. <laughs> there's going to be a sequel." And and I can't help but noticing that John's writing down on these napkins, and. And he finally looks up and he says, I wrote the first song. And he hands him the napkins. And it was the lyrics to Blaze of Glory. No and he wrote it in 15 minutes in a diner. 
And those napkins are now in a frame in Emilio's house. And Blaze of Glory was the biggest single Bon Jovi or John Bon Jovi Mm -hmm. had to that date. Uh, It was a monster hit. And so I had a couple experiences like that where... It's a great story. I was just so impressed with that. And I remember trying to go home. And I think at that time I was like 24 years old. And I remember going home because I could play. And I tried to write a song like that. And I was like, (laughs) not a chance. (laughs) Not a chance. That took another 20 years for me to start to develop and feel comfortable in. But I was so impressed with him over that. Mm -hmm. That's great. That was badass. Last question. Take Jack Bauer out of the equation. Who's your favorite character that you've played? Is there some that come to mind? Well, you know, I'd have to say it was Tom Kirkman right now because that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. uh, my old answer used to be I haven't played him yet. Ah. You know, but I have to say I have been incredibly fortunate. And as I look back, uh, Jack Bauer, just as a character, just because of the amount of time that I got to spend with that character, and, and I really empath. A, I admired kind of his moral compass. I thought he was mm-hmm. a very righteous person character and I wish I was half that mm-hmm. but he was also so much fun to play you know I remember the, so embarrassing I mean I'm 510 on a good day <laughs> if I'm standing really straight and they'd send in some guy who's 6'4 240 pounds and I'd look at him and go well it says I'm going to kick your ass so I guess I'm going to kick your ass <laughs> you know in real life I mean it would take two seconds and he'd hit me with right, his finger right, right. and I'd be down but because I had these great moves or whatever, I, you know, it was written, mm-hmm. uh, it would work out. So that was all that kind of stuff was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You know, David and Lost Boys, Ace and Stand By Me, Doc and Young Guns. Mm-hmm. Those times were a lot of fun. I wish I had known more then. I would have enjoyed the experience kind of more if I had known how lucky I was to when be there. When you're younger, you think there's going to be a hundred of those. I, yeah, yeah, you do. And it's, and it's, and boy, it, you know, so 20 years old to 30 years old, everything's going swimmingly. And oh my God, this is how my life And Then 30 <laughs> just dried up and stopped. Mm-hmm. And for a while, four or five years, and then got very lucky with 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, and, and you need that moment where it dries up and stops. Because that's what allows you to look back and go, oh my gosh, how lucky was Mm -hmm. I? And I will never take that for granted again. And then when I did 24, I didn't. Mm -hmm. It was one of the great times of my life. And and I hope the same for for this experience with Designated Survivor. And the same with touring with the album. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I needed to learn not to take those things for granted. You can tell that you haven't. Well, bless your heart. Cheers. Thank you, man. Cheers, man. Awesome, awesome to see you again. Thank you, brother. Awesome Cheers. To see you. Thank, you. Thank you, guys. Chris Jericho, pro wrestler, rock and roller, actor, philanthropist. He's the best. And now you can dress like the best at Chris Jericho's House of Scarves. Chris Jericho's House of Scarves has scarves of all shapes, sizes, and fabrics for all your scarfing needs, like a light-up scarf for a night on the town, or a light-up scarf for sailing on your yacht, and yes, even a light-up scarf for sex stuff. All of Chris Jericho's House of Scarves scarves are guaranteed to match your wardrobe as long as it's briefs and boots. 
Just visit one of our 37 locations, all located within five minutes of Tampa's Dying Mall. And don't forget to tell them Team Tiger Awesome sent you. Chris Jericho's House of Scarves are not affiliated with Chris Jericho. Paid for by the Committee for the Advancement of Scarves. <laughs> all right. There's only one Chris Jericho, but man, I've already got a light-up scarf, dudes. You got a, I, I debuted it at uh, WrestleMania. But hey, I might have to hit up one of those 37 House of Scarves locations just to see what's up. Uh, th- uh, you should definitely hit up Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the Team Tiger Awesome show new episodes every sunday start your week with a laugh uh, i'm actually on the latest episode i sit down with monday truly and clint to do a creative band let me know whose band you're digging more my east german techno metal band uh eggs truly's island ska monday's straight orlando teeny bopper soul or clint's 70s lake rock you gotta check out creative band it's hilarious and while you're doing that uh leave them a team uh, tiger awesome five-star rating and stellar review and do the same for all the shows in the jericho network rock talk with mitch lafon New episodes every Monday. I love the Forgotten Guitar Players of Ozzy Osbourne episode. Really, really cool. Uh, Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus every Tuesday. They're killing it. Obviously, Beyond the Darkness Monday through Friday. I listen to the Paul is Dead and other Rock and Roll Mysteries episode. I'm going to do one of those for myself for Talk is Jericho. Actually, can do that in Knoxville in a couple days. Uh, don't forget the Raven Effect. Raven talks all about his, uh, his early years working in Memphis and Florida. The wrestling territories, the wrestling stories. He's given his secret origin uh it's all about wrestling for the next couple weeks on the raven effect and the flagship show keeping it 100 with conan every thursday he did a four-hour show a couple weeks ago and did one of the highest ratings that uh he's ever done so who can tell you know i try and keep my shows around an hour he does two hours three hours four hours and you guys keep listening so we appreciate that five-star ratings and reviews uh guess what's starting on friday that's right, the Fozzie Judas Rising Tour. King and Sons of Texas are going to be with us for most of the dates. Get tickets at FozzieRock.com. We got uh, Canton, Georgia, The Revival this Saturday. Go check that show out. It's going to be a great. It's a great venue there. Uh, and then we go to, uh, to Tuesday, the Concourse in Knoxville. 10th of May, Trixie's in Louisville. The 11th is The Rave in Milwaukee with uh, All That Remains. Green Bay Distillery on the 12th. The 14th Northern Invasion. 16th Diesel Club in Pittsburgh. That show's doing great. Community Club in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Always like going there. That's on the 17th. 18th is 89 North in Pechaga, New York. 19th House of Independence, Asbury Park. 20th Blue Fox in Winchester, Virginia. That one's going to sell out. 21st is Morgantown, Virginia uh, at the main stage. 23 Flint, uh, Michigan. The Machine Shop. We love that venue. The Forge is in Joliet on the 24th, Fubar in St. Louis on the 25th, and then we finish off with a trio of Texas area uh, events, three festivals, Rocklahoma, River City Rock Fest, and the BFD in Dallas ends it off on the 28th. Then we're headed across the pond to the Download Festival, June 11th, main stage with Aerosmith on the Sunday. I'm hosting the Metal Hammer Golden God Awards on June 12th. On the 13th, we're at the Crawford Arms in Milton Keynes, but uh, if you wanted to go to that one, it's too late, it's sold out. And there's going to be a not-so-secret Fozzie gig on the 14th in England somewhere. I can't tell you where, but keep your eyes open and your hands on the wheel. There's a few tickets left to the Words of Jericho. Uh, listen in, man. Uh, show in Dublin on June 8th, but the June 7th Belfast show is completely sold out. Go to Ticketmaster.ie to grab one of the remaining few tickets for the June 8th show, and maybe something will open up on the uh, Belfast show. But hey, thank you so much, and let me give one last shout-out to all the great Talk is Jericho sponsors. you find that at podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button at the top of the page, eh? then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Thanks to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. 20% off the DDP Yoga app and all DDPY merch. Loot Crate. 
Order your WWE Slam Crate at LootCrate.com slash talk. Use the promo code TALK. Save three bucks off your first crate. The Books Get Mom Flowers at Books.com. B-O-U-Q-S.com. Use the promo code Jericho. Save 20% off your order. And Proper Cloth. Go to PropperCloth.com slash Jericho. Order your custom dress shirt today. Use the promo code Jericho. Save 20 bucks off your first shirt. These things are stylish and they're affordable. They look great. Uh, thank you so much to Kiefer Sutherland. Thank you for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. And this Friday, Dave Batista returns because guess what's opening? Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Drax the Destroyer, Dave Batista, one of my uh, best friends in the wrestling business, and becoming a huge movie star. Wait till you hear all the actors he's worked with. Harrison Ford, Jodie Foster, Chris Pratt, Robert De Niro. The list goes on and on and on. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 opens on Friday. Dave is going to be here to help kick it off. Can't wait for that. In the meantime, in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.